It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Tammy Bruce. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, July 12th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Seven House seats or 37? The latest Fox News analysis of how big the red wave will be this November is in, and it has the GOP anywhere from smiling to ecstatic. The Republicans definitely have the wind at their back, both because of inflation and also because the party in power is the Democratic Party, and so there is going to be a a, a reaction to that. I'm Dave Anthony. There's another January 6th hearing today focusing on extremists who rioted at the Capitol that day. Were any linked to then-President Trump? Two of those militias have been indicted by the Justice Department on the most serious charges that have been brought to date, which is a seditious conspiracy. So it would be a big deal if they could actually establish a connection. This is Paul Morrow with your Fox News commentary coming up. The latest Fox News power rankings have Republicans taking control of the U.S. House with at least a seven-seat majority. In a Republican best-case scenario, the GOP captures 37 seats. We are going to vote with our pocketbooks. And keep that in mind, when when you look at the, the, the level of inflation that we have seen just in my lifetime, this is the highest it's ever been. And the American public is not going to forget that here in November. Wesley Hunt is an Army veteran and the Republican candidate for one of the new congressional seats in Texas. The power rankings say the road to GOP control in the Senate is a bit tougher, but still Republicans need to hang on to what they have and get a hold of two of the five toss-up seats. One of those toss-ups is Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan's seat in New Hampshire, and she, like many Democrats, is using the recent Supreme Court decision overturning Roe as campaign fuel. This decision catapults us backwards, and there are politicians like Mitch McConnell who've made it clear that their objective is to ban abortion nationwide. Wide. We will not be intimidated. I will fight and never back down. The Fox analysis concludes the Roe decision means there's an asterisk to this data that voters continue to absorb the Supreme Court's ruling as the abortion issue prompts a Fox power ranking decision to move the Pennsylvania governor's race from toss up to lean Democratic, as polling indicates most Pennsylvanians want some abortion rights protected. But back to the House numbers, anywhere from 7 to 37 seats for Republicans might sound like a wide range, but we still have a few months to go. It's actually pretty much right on track with an average midterm. Darren Shaw is a member of the Fox News Decision Desk and professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Which sounds a little odd, given that it seems like such a pro-Republican year. But one of the things we know from political science is that Your opportunities for pickups in the midterm election are largely a function of how well you did in the previous presidential. And because Republicans actually picked up seats in 2020, you know, there aren't as many targets in 2022 as, you know, one might expect coming off a presidential loss. And so while it looks, you know, from the power rankings and other smart analyses of this, like the Republicans are a very strong bet to win the House, You notice that the raw number of seats they're going to pick up is is kind of mid-20s seems to be the consensus. And that's nowhere near the seat shifts that you saw, say, in 1994 or 2014. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think the Republicans definitely have the wind at their back. Arnon Mishkin is the head of the Fox News Decision Desk. Both because of inflation and also because the party in power are the Democrat, is the Democratic Party. And so there is going to be a, a reaction to that. And so I see them picking up a number of seats, at least the, the number seen in the, in the power ranking and potentially uh, even more. But obviously, that's the view in July. What the view will be in October, November, mm. we'll find out. How important are the president's poll numbers in this discussion? We keep seeing them sink lower and lower. Darren, we're seeing more polls with approvals in like the mid 30s. How telling is that? Or is that just a reflection of how unhappy people are generally? And so that same mirror is being held up to the so-called party in power. So Democrats in general are paying the price as we look at at midterms. Uh, Yes and yes. The numbers aren't great. Um, They're not that far out of line, by the way, with previous uh, midterm presidential approval ratings. We, we pulled some numbers recently, and the numbers that now, if, if Biden drifts down into the mid-30s, like you were saying, and it stays there, then he does become one of the least popular presidents heading into a, a midterm like this. But if he's, say, at 41, he's very close to Trump, who was at 40, I believe, right before the 2018 midterms. He's not that far off from uh, Obama and Clinton and Reagan, uh, all of whom got whacked in their first midterm elections, but ended up winning re-election in most instances fairly comfortably. So, you know, there's a strong relationship between presidential approval and seat loss. Right now, if you simply run a uh, an average line correlating your presidential approval rating with seat losses, you know, that line right now would have Biden at about 40, 41 percent, which correlates to about a 20 seat loss. I would just add to that and maybe disagree a bit. I think Biden's numbers are actually lower than 40 in most of the polling that I've seen. Um, Biden's numbers are really low. To the extent that there's any kind of silver lining, it goes back to Donald Trump's nickname for Joe Biden, Sleepy Joe. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, the thing about Biden is people are dissatisfied. They're not happy with inflation. I don't know how much they hate Joe Biden. I don't know how much anger there is there. A lot of those low numbers are coming from sort of the Democratic folks. They're not going to vote against the Democrats. So in a sense, Sleepy Joe, because he's not as big a presence as uh, Donald Trump was or or Barack Obama were in terms of the, the public psyche, there's an ability, potential ability for the Democrats to sort of show some distance from the White House and sort of get judged possibly on a slightly different metric, which might enable them to lose less seats than they might otherwise lose. When we look at which House seats may flip, like if we get more granular, they're a little bit all over the place. But the power rankings note the suburbs really matter here. Arne and you and I were just talking about those suburbs and the independent nature of suburban voters. The power rankings highlight specific seats, two in Virginia, one in Nevada, one in Pennsylvania, one in Kansas. They matter in midterms, not just presidential elections. So what can we glean from talking about states like Virginia and Nevada in a midterm year? Well, I mean, there was in in a state like Virginia, Virginia, Biden carried by 10 points. A year later, a Republican governor won by a little less than two, I think. Um, And so there's been a swing of about 10 points in that swing state. Um, Those are the areas that the Democrats will need to defend if they're have any chance of holding the House or not losing as many seats as they might otherwise lose. And right now, those are the areas of the country that are very sensitive to issues of inflation. This is where families live. Um, And so that hurts the president and hurts the president's party. There are a number of other issues that are emerging. 
And the question is, to what extent will the Democrats be able to capitalize on them? And by those issues, I mean abortion with the, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court decision, gun control with the gun control bill that just passed. To what extent will the Democrats be able to capitalize on them? Or to what extent will the Republicans be able to elide those issues in a way that enables them to win seats? I was looking at some of the seats projected to go Republican that are currently held by Democrats, like Arizona's first and second districts, California's 40th and 41st, Florida's 13th. These have been held by Republicans before. So maybe it's not so surprising to see seats like that sort of flip. Are either of you seeing anything surprising or unexpected as you look around the country at these different seats? Darren, I'll ask you first. Well, I don't know how surprising it is. It would have been very surprising if Arne and I had made this observation in, at this point in 2020. But now everybody's sort of caught on to this. It's, it's these districts that have significant Hispanic populations. The obvious one is, is Texas 28. Uh, you have some of the Florida districts that have large Cuban populations. The notion that they are competitive and, and targets of opportunity for the Republicans, you know, that's a stunning change. So if that's a long-term trend to American politics, It's enormously consequential for party coalitions and the way politics is framed moving forward. The power rankings note, as you guys have, that it remains to be seen what impact overturning Roe will have on midterms if if those suburban women voters will be more motivated. But the ranking authors do say that state races will matter more, right, as the Supreme Court decision now means abortion is a state matter. Do you foresee this impacting other governor races that are considered toss-ups like maybe Nevada, Michigan, um, Arizona, Wisconsin. Yeah, I think, you know, as you pointed out, it's now a state issue, uh, abortion. In most cases, you know, the the states that we're talking about is being critical to the election. So I'm thinking about places like Georgia, like Pennsylvania, like Arizona. It does introduce a cross-cutting issue into an issue environment that is otherwise extraordinarily favorable for the Republicans. So Arne and I have talked about this. A 50-50 issue is an improvement for the Democrats in this election cycle, right? Um, so it's it's not that, you know, you're shifting from inflation where Biden's approval rating is in the 20s uh, to an issue in which his approval rating is in the 80s, but you don't need that. You simply need to get on, on, on more sort of solid ground, a more competitive issue environment. And look, I, I think this works at a couple different levels real briefly. The first is it gins up volunteer efforts and fundraising for the Democrats in states where there are trigger laws or states where the Republicans have put in place particularly draconian abortion laws, it has an opportunity to be really important as an issue and to really kind of shake things up. The thing about abortion is abortion is a really complicated issue on which people have very nuanced views. And by people, I mean 90% of the country. Yes, there's a group that is uh, strongly in favor of abortion rights until the day of birth. And then there's a group that is strongly opposed to any kind of abortion from the date of conception. But most people are somewhere in the middle and somewhere in the range. And the challenge historically from Americans is one party has been very clearly the party of choice that has evolved into that. And one party has been very clearly the party against abortion. But the reality is you need to navigate a very complicated field um, in terms of, you know, when you want to, you you think it's okay to have an abortion, under what circumstances there can be an abortion. And that is an opportunity for a genius politician who can figure out how to navigate around that. But that is what every congressperson running is going to have to do um, with their district and every governor running is going to have to do because the simple answers that were possible in the era of Roe are no longer possible. 
And I, I can't let you guys go without talking about the Senate, because if, if the House is going to be, you know, according to all these analyses, uh, Republican, uh, there is def- a definite possibility that the Senate will as well. Although it sounds like based on the Fox power rankings, there's a smaller likelihood of that happening. Um, I want to ask both of you briefly. Where are Republicans most hopeful? Because they just need two, right? They just need two of these seats as long as they hold the others. Well, the holding is a, you know, is a pretty big uh, asterisk. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think if, if I'm, I don't want to speak for my, my, my boss, Arnon Michigan, senior <laughs> member of the decision team, but um, Pennsylvania is a, a very intriguing potential pickup for the Democrats. But if, if you look at those seats, I know most Republicans have talked about Georgia and Arizona. Um, yes. I actually think Nevada is the, the best opportunity for a pickup right now, um, partly because of the, the way the economic you know, downturn has affected Nevada specifically, uh, partly because of the, Hispan- the movement in the Hispanic community there, uh, which is really talking about unpredictable. I mean, without 60 plus percent of the Hispanic population, Democrats are not going to win elections in Nevada. So I, I look at Nevada. That would be my you know, first amongst equals there. Arnon? Uh, I think Arizona remains a real opportunity for the for the Republicans, um, depending on who which candidate gets the nomination and what kind of candidate gets the nomination. And depending on which candidate gets the gubernatorial nomination in Arizona, I'd look to Arizona as a a very clear potential pickup. Um, And I would look, obviously, uh, listen to Darren in terms of Nevada. Um, But one of the interesting themes that you see in the Senate races is how dependent it is on whom the candidate, whom the parties choose as mm. their their nominee, and in some cases, the Republicans have chosen candidates that appear at this stage to be how you say suboptimal. Um, but who gets picked in the remaining primaries, I think, will determine the extent to which the Republicans can win the, the control of the Senate. Darren Shaw, Arnon Michigan, thank you both so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This is Paul Morrow with your Fox News commentary coming up. The Democrat-led House Committee investigating last year's Capitol riot, holds another public hearing today. This is an amazing thing for the American people to hear the truth. Most importantly, we just want the truth to come out so that uh, something like this never happens again in this country. Congressman Adam Kinzinger told ABC's This Week on Sunday. This has been a bipartisan committee, uh, and I'm very proud of the work we've done. He and Congresswoman Liz Cheney are the only Republicans on the committee and were among the 10 GOP House members who voted with Democrats to impeach then-President Trump days after the riot. Most other Republicans call the investigation unfair and unbalanced. The former president calls it a hoax. Now, today's hearing will focus on extremist groups like the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys involved in storming the Capitol, interrupting the certification of Joe Biden's election. Democrat Jamie Raskin told CBS Face the Nation Sunday they'll also probe a December meeting. On that day, the group of lawyers, of outside lawyers, who've been denominated Team Crazy by people uh, in and around the White House, uh, came in. Uh, to try to urge several new courses of action, including the seizure of voting machines, 
around the country. So will we learn something new at this hearing? I really hesitate to call them hearings because they're not really adversarial. They're more tightly scripted performances than hearings. Andy McCarthy is a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, now a Fox News contributor. They were going to turn their attention to what they claim are operational connections between President Trump, or at least the people who were around President Trump, and the militias that uh, are said to have played a big role, an instigating role in the Capitol riot. Two of those militias have been indicted by the Justice Department on the most serious charges that have been brought to date, which is a seditious conspiracy. So it would be a big deal if they could actually establish a connection. The president, back in December of 2020, this is President Trump, he tweeted, big protest in D.C. January 6th, be there, will be wild. Now, There have been Democrats who have said that was like a siren call for a big last stand that he wanted like domestic extremist groups to be part of his election protest and attempts to not let Joe Biden become president. Is that a step toward co-conspiracy? Well, if it was true, sure. Uh, the, The problem you have is I think there's an alternative interpretation of the facts that is not, by the way, one that's laudatory of Trump, but it's it's not criminal. And that is that uh, what Trump was trying to do was stir up a lot of protest among his supporters to get a, a big crowd behind him so that he would create pressure on members of Congress, particularly Republican members of Congress and pressure on Vice President Pence at the time to indulge this idea that they had the legal authority to reject the counting of electoral votes, which is what then President Trump was trying to accomplish in order to get the election overturned. To my mind, that's not a good thing, obviously, because I don't see that there was any legal authority for this whatsoever. But it's very different from saying that you wanted people to come and and riot at the Capitol. Steve Bannon, once chief strategist in the Trump White House, faces a trial next week on criminal contempt charges for refusing to cooperate with the committee's investigation. Over the weekend, Bannon did an about-face, offering to testify, preferably in public. But the Justice Department calls it a last-ditch effort to avoid accountability, not genuine. People should understand, even if he did suddenly now appear, that would not vitiate what went on before. There would still be a criminal case against him. But he's obviously very concerned about that. And the second element of this is that President Trump miscalculated in the sense that at the beginning of the January 6th proceeding, what he wanted was for all of his supporters and for Republicans in general to take the position that the committee was illegitimate and should be ignored. And, you know, he's the one who counseled Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader in the House, uh, to not contribute Republican members once Speaker Pelosi wouldn't allow uh, Jim Jordan and Jim Banks to sit on the committee. Those were the pro-Trump Republicans that were proposed right. by McCarthy. Right. Uh, they decided to take the position not to cooperate and not to and to label a thing as illegitimate. Now they're unhappy about that. So they would like, you know, we're suddenly hearing from Trump that, oh, McCarthy made a mistake. He should have had Republicans on the committee. And now Bannon wants to testify. Now, 
if they want some sort of a public forum to push back against Democrats, the committee may not even give them that chance, right? I mean, there's no reason the committee has to give them a public forum. They could say, okay, come in private. You're exactly right. They're not going to do anything for Bannon, particularly after he's done nothing for them. They're not going to do anything for Bannon that they haven't done for any other witness. The way this committee operates, you show up as directed behind the scenes to give testimony, and then they decide how much of your testimony is going to be broadcast to the public. Are they going to do what Bannon wants them to do? No, this is all this is public posturing because the committee's going to tell Bannon you can do it our way or you can't do it. And then Bannon's going to run out and Trump is going to run out and say, see, 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 this whole thing is illegitimate. It's a witch hunt. You know, I mean, you, we could write the script for it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Bear with me. Well, let's go back. Cassidy Hutchinson at that last public hearing, an aide to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, she talked about uh, President Trump knew that people in the crowd, he was told at that rally that he was going to address on January 6th, had weapons. He supposedly didn't care because he said they weren't coming for him. And Hutchinson told a story. She says she was told about the president in a limo after his speech at the rally shortly before the riot. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. Now, the man who supposedly told her that story, Tony Ornato, and the agent involved, Engel, supposedly dispute that. Now, Andy, should we expect to see them publicly testifying? I don't think so. At the moment, there's no indication that that's scheduled. Right. And after her testimony, they uh, did talk to Pat Cipollone, who was at the time a White House counsel. She talked about some of the things he supposedly said that they need to get a good lawyer if something goes bad at the Capitol riot. His testimony, did that corroborate her story? Well, that's the you know, the public reporting about his testimony is that it was heavily negotiated and Cipollone's lawyers evidently gave the committee uh, a heads up about what he would be in a position to corroborate and what he wouldn't. And what the committee apparently, according to the New York Times, decided to do was not ask him about areas where they had reason to believe he would say that he did not remember saying the things that she said he said. In other words, where he would contradict her, uh, they they didn't ask. Okay. I've heard people say, well, what she testified to is just hearsay. It's not admissible in court. And, um, you know, somebody in here is a liar. I would just point out, Dave, that this happens all the time in trials and in, in hearings. It doesn't necessarily mean anyone is lying. But what we usually get is we get an opportunity to see all of the relevant witnesses, we get them, we get to see them get cross-examined. And to the extent that there's divergences or inconsistencies in the testimony, we make our judgment about whether someone's lying or maybe they just had different perspectives on it. Or, you know, maybe one person's 
uh, one person's trying to tell the truth, but their memory is more faulty than another person. There could be a lot of reasons for inconsistencies, but you're not in any position to gauge it unless you get to see the testimony. Okay. After a lot of these hearings, there has been some reaction from people saying, oh boy, Trump is toast now. Oh, he's finished now. This is it for him. He's never, that, that's very damaging. Do you think that this has damaged him to that degree? I mean, here he is. He's out there. He had a rally over the weekend in Alaska. There's talk of him still wanting to run for president. He might even announce before the midterms another bid for the White House. What do you think? I think what's happening with the January 6th committee is largely a performance, and it's very political. And I would continue to remind people that the Justice Department has been investigating this for 18 months, and they are apparently trying to build a case. We don't know if they'll make it or not. There's a lot that goes into deciding whether you would charge a former president. But all I can say is that they've charged 800 people and in not a single case have they alleged that President Trump was an unindicted co-conspirator, either in seditious conspiracy or obstruction of Congress or any of the other uh, serious relevant charges here. You know, one of the famous things people always seem to mention is you can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. So even if you charged the president, a grand jury could indict him, right? I mean, that could they could do that. Yeah, it's true. It's also, uh, I've always found that that old bromide is not really accurate. And the reason that people think that they indict 100% of cases that the prosecutors want them to indict, what that misses is... There are probably a lot of cases that prosecutors want to indict that they don't ask the grand jury uh, for an indictment on because they can tell from the proceeding that the grand jury doesn't like the case uh, for whatever reason. Okay. And and in the grand jury, grand jurors get to ask questions. You know, it, it, the prosecutor often doesn't like where the grand jury wants to take the proceeding. So, you know, there's a lot that goes on in the grand jury. And I would think that a grand jury proceeding would be much preferable to what we're seeing with the congressional committee, because, you know, these are biased politicians who are put on the committee precisely because they're anti-Trump and they want to see Trump get charged. And I say that as someone, you know, I thought President Trump should have been impeached for what went on January 6th. I'm not trying to excuse it, but this is not a hearing that you could hang your hat on. This committee proceeding is not something you could hang your hat on and say, now I really feel like I know what happened. Andy McCarthy, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and a Fox News contributor. Great to talk to you. Thanks again. Thanks, Dave. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Paul Morrow. What's on your mind? As America had enough of violent career criminals and the district attorneys who protect them. Growing public outrage over New York City's Bodega case may mean a tipping point over the lenient treatment of criminals and failure to protect the public is coming. Or is it already here? The facts of that case as they've been reported. After an argument between a 61-year-old Bodega worker, Jose Alba, 
and a woman customer, the woman's boyfriend, Austin Simon, entered the bodega and attacked Alba behind the counter. During the struggle, Alba grabbed a knife and stabbed Simon. At some point, Simon's girlfriend also joined the fight, stabbing Alba several times in the arm. Simon died of his wounds. Alba was arrested by police and charged with intentional murder by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. That the incident and Alba's apparent efforts at self-defense were caught on video fueled instantaneous outrage over the arrest, which only grew as new facts emerged. For one, Alba is by all accounts a longtime pillar of his community, a mild-mannered Dominican immigrant with no criminal record who works long hours. Simon, a 35-year-old violent career criminal with numerous felony arrests, was out on parole for assaulting a police officer. Then there is Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg's treatment of Alba. Under New York law, Alba was entitled to employ deadly physical force if he believed he was confronted by the same. Now, he was threatened by Simon's girlfriend and then attacked by Simon, who appeared to reach threateningly for his pocket at points. Alba, who told Simon, Papa, I don't want a problem, Papa, clearly had no means to retreat as the assault began. So a viable and more prudent option for Bragg would have been to defer prosecution while gathering facts for submission to the grand jury. Instead, Bragg's office charged intentional murder and requested high bail for an accused with no criminal record and significant community ties. If the district attorney has other facts to counter what looks like a strong justification defense for Alba, which is always possible, those facts had better be game changers. All this comes as fears grow that crime in major American cities is simply out of control and residents have had enough. In San Francisco, D.A. Chesa Boudin was just recalled by a referendum in that heavily Democratic city. In Philadelphia, an effort to impeach D.A. Larry Krasner is underway. In Manhattan, Bragg entered office this year by issuing a notorious reform memo that instructed prosecutors to avoid jail time for all but the most serious crimes. All while crime was significantly up in New York over the prior year in nearly every major category. What all these prosecutors share is a view of their mission as less law enforcement and more sociological tinkering. And all had their election campaigns funded by George Soros. Bragg's to the tune of a reported $1 million. The New York case could be the final national tipping point on the issue of criminal justice, as has happened before. While the groundswell of support for Alba echoes the 1984 Bernard Getz vigilante shooting of four subway muggers, the last true tipping point case was in 1990. Brian Watkins, a Utah tourist, was killed while trying to protect his mother during a subway mugging. The city had had enough. The headlines blared, and the ensuing outrage led to the era of Mayor Giuliani and broken windows policing, measures that inspired a New York renaissance and became a model for policing internationally. Like the Watkins killing... The Alba case could have wide effects. So what is next? The Alba case has captured wide attention beyond New York, and Bragg is clearly feeling the heat. Will Alba give interviews, as Bernard Getz did, becoming a symbol of fighting back? Could a trial lead to a groundswell that causes a political sea change, like the Watkins case? And could we see these effects nationwide during this year's midterms? The signs are there, which means that we may someday refer to the pre-Alba and post-Alba New York, or even post-Alba America, making this a case worth watching. I am Paul Morrow, retired NYPD inspector. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. 
Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.